Well, good morning, uh, everybody, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, dear friends. Um, I wasn't expecting that I was doing the reading, but since I've read this through quite a lot as I've prepared the sermon based on it, uh, I'm pretty familiar with it, so I think I can read it to you now. Okay, so the reading is uh, from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 uh, to 5, verse 11. Um, and look, I will put this on rather than the... Okay. Okay, Acts 4 from verse 32. This is according to the New International Version. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's just pray together before I begin the sermon. May we hear your word, O Lord our God. May it enter deeply into us and produce in us faith, hope and love to your glory. Amen. Well, this morning's Bible reading may have startled us. Two Christians, a married couple, were judged for their sin and suddenly died. 
their deaths are actually the first recorded deaths of Christians in the Bible. It's a strong contrast, this incident, with what's come before so far in the book of Acts. Intimidation and persecution from outside the church was not unexpected. It was there right from the beginning. We heard about the beginning of such action in last week's sermon based on chapter 4, the hostile actions of the Jewish religious leaders, their threats and so on. And those kind of things only increased as time went by. And after all that we would have read previously in all the gospel accounts, we're not surprised because Jesus forewarned his followers, recorded in John chapter 15 and verses 18 and 19, he said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So the things that they experienced that we heard of last week and that increased were not unexpected. But the Ananias and Sapphira incident that we've got before us now is something inside the church. Up to this point in the account, all that we've read about the church has been positive, very positive in fact. Acts 4, from where we read today, uh, the first few verses actually repeats and even extends uh, what we heard previously at the end of chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the, on the, on the early church. It was really the birth of the Christian church and uh, on the day of Pentecost. It, it repeats those words that we had read there and, and even extends it. And it's a wonderful and lively picture. Let's just pick a couple of phrases from it um, in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. Isn't that wonderful? And it then says um, that um, great grace was upon them all. A very wonderful picture. And then immediately after it was repeated those things, um, it gives a brief account about a man whose action well illustrates this general way of the Christian church at this time. That's this man, Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas was generous. We read, let's just read what it says there, verses 36 and 7. Or his proper name was Joseph. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, he was by no means alone. Many, many did this who had such property. Um, but I think he's specifically mentioned because he will become important later on in the book of Acts and he's being introduced here. But we get an illustration from him as to what the church was like. It was generous and good-hearted, um, caring for um, the, whole, the community as a whole and uh, being willing to support uh, everything. And so he's to be commended, as I say. And then at this point, at the beginning of chapter 5, there's a dramatic change in the account. The account of Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. I won't reread the entire passage, but I want us to carefully consider it. And in particular, what was their sin? The Apostle Peter, in his questions to them, makes it clear uh, that they were entitled to that property that they owned. It was something that God had given them. Now, these two may have been better off than most in the community, more than others, but that's okay. 
They always were rich and poor, and they always will be. They were at liberty to own that piece of property. They were at liberty to use it, to retain it if they wished, to sell it if they wanted, and to use the proceeds from that sale in any way they chose. Having sold the property, they were then free to use the proceeds from that sale uh, for their keep it for their own use or to give it to the common fund or to give part to the common fund and retain part to themselves. They were perfectly at liberty in all this. So what was their sin? They lied to the Apostle Peter as the leader of the Christian church at that stage and so they lied to the whole church. They kept back part of the proceeds but pretended to give all the money they'd received. And it seems they wanted to appear more generous than they really were. They wanted the uh, praise of the apostles and of others for the, their generosity, uh, and yet they weren't, they weren't really doing that. It was a deception. And in their attempted deception, they were actually lying to God. God, whom they should have known, searches our hearts, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 27. And from the Old Testament, there was always that, um, that in the information about God. He knows the secrets of the heart, it says in Psalm 44, verse 21. But they lied to the, to the Holy Spirit, it says. How did they think they'd get away with this? Of course God knew what was going on and their, in their, in their, them and their deception. Notice how this text also says the Holy Spirit in particular. They lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, I'm sure you would share my feeling as we read this that it seems like a very harsh penalty, doesn't it? They died because of this deception they practised. And maybe it's not what we expected to happen in the New Testament. There's a popular idea, which is a lie, Actually, it's actually a double lie. It goes like this. God of the Old Testament, he's harsh and judgmental. But the God of the New Testament, by contrast, is kind and accepting. So what's going on here in this incident with Ananias and Sapphira? Some people blame Peter, saying that his attitude doesn't match that of Jesus. But it was actually God who um, took this action, not Peter. Peter only announced it. In the case of Ananias, it says in chapter 5, verses 4 and B, he said, Peter, Peter questions them, and he says that, well, look, you're, you have lied not to men but to God. And then when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. So it was God's action. God caused uh, Ananias to die. A little later, when he confronts his, Sapphira, um, Peter did in fact announce what would happen before it did happen. He said, um, the, he implies that she is going to die because he mentions about the case of Ananias. But once again, it's God who took her life. Uh, says that she um, fell down and died as well after Peter had confronted her with this deception. So it's actually God who's taking this action in both cases. Why did God do this? It was a huge lesson for all the Christians of that day and ever since that God, our God, is a holy God 
and he's not to be trifled with. Twice in these few verses, it says this. Let me read verses 5 and 11. It says, Great fear seized all who heard what had happened to Ananias. And then the second time, after the death of his wife too, it repeats similar words. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The Greek word for fear in these verses is phobos. It's the common word for fear, from which we derive the word phobia in words like arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. And it's easy to understand the fear that was pervasive at that time. I, I can get it. Um, and I note too that Luke writes not just fear, but great fear gripped everyone who came to knowledge of these things. Now, occasionally this Greek word is translated awe. Perhaps we should reconsider what awe really means. There's a modern, regular use of the word awesome. Have you ever heard that word? This and that is awesome. It actually debases the meaning of awe. We should be in awe of God at all times. We should have a proper fear of him, as the church did at this time. Incidentally, this is the very first time in the, in the book of Acts uh, that the word church is used, that the, the Christian community is called the church. In verse 11, the great fear seized the whole church. From here on, it becomes the common word to describe believers in Christ. It's used in two ways. Firstly, to describe the entirety of God's people in space and time, the one universal church. And secondly, it's used to describe uh, every local assembly, every local church. Sometimes, for example, in the Apostles' Creed, which we occasionally recite together in our services, the word Catholic is used. This word simply means universal. It's not a reference to the Roman church. So there's the church universal, and then there's the church individual and local in every place. Now, one of the reasons I see why this account is here is it tells us that the church was not perfect. Its members, though each one is a saint, each one is also a sinner. Luke does not ignore or minimise the weaknesses of the church. He's not going to glamorise the situation and paint an unreasonable rosy picture. We might have had a head in the clouds after the first reading of Acts to the end of chapter 4, but chapter 5 brings us back to earth with a jolt, doesn't it? God has made us his holy people in Christ. He loves us, he's made us holy in Christ and we respond in love to him um, in the way that he said, in the way he wants for his glory. He's made us holy. But temptation and sin are ongoing issues in the church and the life of every individual Christian. Until, God, until glory, God's work of sanctification is an ongoing work in us, individually and collectively. And it will be like that until Christ comes. Now that we've considered the Ananias and Sapphira incident, it'll be worth our while revisiting uh, something in the Old Testament. There's a couple of incidents, in fact, that are quite relevant. Firstly, let's look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. 
This is almost at the beginning of Israel's existence, about maybe 1,300 years before the time of Jesus and the church. In Leviticus 10, 1 to 3, we read this, that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorised or strange fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured, says God. As I said, this is at the beginning of Israel's existence as a nation. The law has only just been given to them through Moses, the tabernacle and its system of worship newly instituted. And these two men, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, um, were uh, Aaron was the first high priest and his sons, they were given the responsibility, the immense responsibility of leading the whole nation in its worship of God in the way that God had uh, stated, the worship of the one true God. They were so privileged uh, as a nation to have that. And they didn't do it as they should have. Immediately after this incident, we read in verses 8 and 9 of that Leviticus 10 that the Lord said to Aaron this, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Now, the fact that this is immediately after that what happened to those two sons makes it very likely that drunkenness was involved in their unauthorised or strange fire, the use of that. Now, whether that's so or not, whether they are linked so directly, as I've indicated, these leaders were definitely dishonouring God in the sight of all the people, excuse me, and they suffered a severe punishment. Does this Nadab and Abihu incident sound anything like the Ananias and Sapphira incident? I think it does. Now, I think that God does not always act like this, of course, but he may. He is holy. I think he did so in these two cases to make a point and to make it strongly. The first one at the beginning of Israel's nationhood and the second time at the beginning of the Christian church. It's to make it clear that God is holy and he calls us to holiness. That point is made over and over again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just the very next chapter after that Leviticus 10 incident in chapter 11 verse 44 is the first occasion when this this, uh, statement is made. Um, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And that That statement is made repeatedly through the Old Testament. Then we have what Jesus said uh, that's very... um, It's linked to this. It said, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 verse 48, he says this, he says, Be perfect. That's what holiness really is, is perfection. Be perfect, he says to us all. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Then we have the Apostle Peter 
Um, the very one involved in this Ananias and Sapphira incident. Later on, he wrote in his first letter, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he actually quoted that Old Testament saying. He says this, he says, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, and here he quotes from Leviticus, Be holy, because I am holy. That should be before us all the time. Now, there's actually another Old Testament incident with a link to this Acts 5 incident, but we won't delve into it now. It's the sin of a man called Achan. He was at the time of Joshua, when Joshua led the Israelites into the Promised Land and they confronted Jericho. Jericho fell, and then they moved on from there. Achan did something very much like Ananias and Sapphira. He took what was forbidden and uh, he, there was a, a deception. It ended up affecting a lot of other people. 18 innocent people died because of what he'd done. And then he was judged and um, put to death as a result. Now, all that's recorded in Joshua 6 and 7, and you might like to look at that later, but I won't go into it here now. Let's return to the New Testament. Firstly, let's consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Second of Timothy... Uh, chapter 2 and verse 19. He's giving instructions here to Timothy to in turn give instructions to the whole church as to how we should live. And he says this, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and secondly, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, what is, um, Paul seems to be quoting here, they seem to be quotes, but there's no actual identical words in, previously in the Bible. But nonetheless, there are many passages that say similar things, and um, Paul here seems to be summing them up and putting them into one saying. And he's describing them as like inscriptions. It's as though they're on the inscribed, engraved on the walls of a building, like even our local church even, they could be around the walls because they're very important issues and they should be in our minds all the time. These two things, the Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. <clears throat> I wonder whether he had in mind uh, the words of Jesus, in fact, um, again in his Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Remember, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He talks about um, people who come to him. This is in chapter 7, verse 22 of Matthew. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, he said, I never knew you. There's that same idea of knowing. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord here says, I don't know, I don't know you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So here you have that other idea in the other inscription. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord must, um, de you know, must depart from wickedness. In the, um, in the King James Version, it did say, depart from me, you evildoers. <clears throat> so I think there's a link there. Now, Paul and Jesus don't mean that the church is perfect. <clears throat> it isn't, is it? We know that, and I know that, and I know myself. This side of glory, no member of the church is perfect. 
We need God's grace. We need his forgiveness. Uh, it's an ongoing thing, isn't it? But each member needs to be oriented in the right direction. Uh, we need to be turning away from wickedness so that we might be known by the Lord. And when we look at the wider context of Paul's words to Timothy here, we find that he's got particular sinful conduct in mind that he could be referring to. So let me just, just pick out a few phrases from the wider context from chapter 2 Timothy chapter 2 from verse 14 through to 23. He says, Warn them, Timothy, warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. He says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Then he says, in verse 23, he says, for example, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind and able to teach, etc., so on. So the, 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 the things he had there were in the context of this um, um, wide-ranging instruction. Now, I think that the things that he says here, it's definitely not the totality of wickedness from which we've got to turn, but they are some illustrations of it that Paul, right at that moment, wanted to draw attention to. <clears throat> and notice that he doesn't say that it would be a good idea to turn from wickedness or we ought to turn from wickedness. He said we must turn away from wickedness. Now there's a second passage of Paul that seems highly relevant to me too that I want to draw to our attention. It's in his first letter to the Corinthians at chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. This too ties in the thought of the Holy Spirit that we've been considering in Acts up till now. He says in chapter 3 verse 16 and 17, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? That's a wonderful truth. We collectively are the temple of God. God's spirit lives in us. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. That's pretty potent, isn't it? Now, in my last sermon here, we considered the Holy Spirit given by God to each and every Christian, by which God lives in us, and because of which each of us experience forgiveness and righteousness. Here, Paul describes the church as a single temple, um, which is made up of all of us, collectively, together, and it's that in which God dwells. And that matches what we've already learned from Acts chapter 2. But I want to draw your attention to the dire warning there in that verse 17. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. It is dire, isn't it? Now the deception practised by Ananias and Sapphira was just such. It was something that, if left unchecked, and if copied and, and uh, multiplied, would have destroyed the church, God's dwelling, God's temple. And God won't have it. God's love is a jealous love, a properly jealous love. He loves us. Jesus loves the church, his bride, and he will glorify the church, his bride. Well, that was a 
pretty somber sermon, wasn't it? I admit that it is, it is so. I'm sorry, but on the other hand, I'm not sorry because it's what God has for us from time to time. He needs to tell us these things and we need to remind ourselves from time to time of these things. Scripture is full of examples for us, both positive and negative. And this incident of Ananias and Sapphira is a negative example of something for us to avoid. We should consider ways in which we could be guilty of similar things. I don't think any of us, myself included, are, are beyond that of de deception of one form or another. And we should consider those things and be cautioned against them. On the other hand, Barnabas that we read about, he's a positive example to us. Not that we necessarily do exactly what he did, sell some of our possessions and give them to a good cause, but we need to have the same spirit that he displayed in that way, in that way he's a good positive example for us. He was generous, kind-hearted, encouraging, seeking the common good as we together glorify our Lord and God. And God will work that in us. He will do that by his spirit working amongst us. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we want to glorify and honour you, for you alone are worthy. We know that we fall far short of what we should be. We ask your forgiveness. Discipline us gently, we pray. Discipline us and strengthen us and enable us by your spirit. And grant, merciful Father, for Jesus' sake, that we may live a godly and obedient life, individually and collectively, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.